Welcome to the Basecamp Community Endurance Coaching Podcast, hosted by head coach Tim Cusick and me, Namrita Brooke. We discuss timely topics related to training and nutrition strategies that you can apply to get the most out of your season. Check out Basecamp's coaching, community training programs, and cycling camps over at joinbasecamp.com. And if you like what you hear, follow us at the Basecamp Community Podcast wherever you listen, leave a five-star review, and subscribe. I am Namrita Brooke, base camp coach and sports nutritionist. I've been coaching for over 10 years. I have a PhD in applied physiology and a master's in sports nutrition. My name is Tim Cusick and I'm the base camp head coach. I've been coaching for over 18 years and I've had the luxury of working with world and national champions, Olympians, and some pretty amazing professional athletes. And we're happy that you're joining us today. Yeah, today. Um, so yeah, we've taken a little break, but we're back to the podcast. And I think a really um timely discussion about heat and heat training and heat adaptation and all of that stuff. Um, it's going to mean something different to everyone. So I think there's a lot, you know, we could go so many different directions today. Um, but I know that you and I, we also kind of want to keep it focused. And I think something we do well here is just keep it all very applied. So what are some key things? that you guys can take away from here to apply to your training, to your racing. It's pretty much hot for everyone right now, wherever you are. So <laughs> no um, <laughs> pun intended. It's a hot topic. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. But I, I think that we've got some kind of interesting and new takes on things and using your combination of your coaching experience at the Olympic and the world level. Um, talk about some physiology and stuff. We can, you know, kind of, maybe discover some new things today. So um, I think the main thing is just to intro the topic here, heat has so many impacts during training and racing. So obviously when we're training in the heat, it affects our performance. Um, is that good or is that bad? We'll kind of talk about that. Um, so there's the performance aspect, but we can also use the stress of the heat to adapt and to help our performance down the road, especially if we are going to be racing in a hot environment. There's also heat acclimation protocols. And I think there's tons of confusion on that. How do people use it? Who needs it? You know, um, what different types are there? What's the difference? So we'll kind of talk about that. And then there's also when maybe you haven't paid that much attention to training in the heat, but you get to race day and it's you look at the forecast and it's going to be really hot or really humid. It's like, okay, what do you do? Because obviously performance might be impacted. So there's that kind of race day. How do you prepare yourself to perform in the heat? So yeah, Tim, what, what happens when we train or race in the heat? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I always like to start with the basics and sometimes that's an oversimplification or something I like to call a blinding flash of the obvious. But I think at times it's really important to discuss that and give it a little uh, uh, anchoring to the why you might be considering heat acclimation, heat training, and things like that. So when it's really hot, humans, we lose exercise capacity. Ta-da! There's my blinding flash. The obvious. We don't perform as well. As a matter of fact, we begin to see significant declines in performances at temperatures really around 85, 86 degrees and above. By 80, there's a, a pretty good study out there. I think it was done at 85, 86 degrees. I think it was 86 degrees. You really start to lose five to seven percent of your 
let's call it endurance performance, but really aerobic performance at that temperature. And as the temperatures go north of that, as the humidity potentially goes with it, those performance uh, numbers get worse. Your performance decline is worse. Now, that is both a physical decline, right? And most of that is driven physically, but there's also a mental decline. You know, the reality is heat is an environmental stress we're applying to the body. And that environmental stress means we have more stress. That means our body is undergoing a higher strain. And we tend to always think about that physiologically, like my, my heart's beating a little harder, um, I, I, I'm, I'm breathing heavier, things like that. But also your RPE, your rate of perceived exertion is significantly higher. And I can absolutely tell you how that translates to your mindset of training and racing in the heat is significantly impacted impacted. So the reality is you just simply can't perform as well. That's the most basic fundamental. I still occasionally see people, no, no, I'm really good in the heat. I'm okay. Yeah, sure. You might mitigate a little bit, but unprepared to perform in the heat, you do lose exercise capacity, period. It gets harder. And now there's some ways that we can improve that but why does it matter, right? Let's ask that other question. So, all right, we're losing exercise capacity. Why does it matter? The number of times I see athletes, base camp athletes or general athletes or professional athletes going to big events in the heat and they are not prepared for the heat, they don't do as well. There's my second blinding flash of the obvious, right? And you're like, and I see people do this all the time. I just wasn't fit enough or I, something was not right with me. Yeah, it was hot you didn't pre-plan and then prepare for the environment you're training in. This is the physiological principle of specificity. That's what you're really addressing here. You need to prepare yourself to perform in this specific environment also. It's not just about the training load. It's not about the type of intervals you're doing. You also need to apply that specificity to the environment. Mm. But that's big picture, right? That's you lose capacity, but you're probably in a better spot to say, well, what, why? Namrita, why do we, what's going on in the body? What are the physiological driving factors of that? Yeah. I mean, if you want to think about it just very generally in big picture, which is probably the best way to start is the heat that we are gaining through our metabolic heat production. So, you know, we lose, we're not hundred percent efficient. We use um, or lose some energy is heat. Um, and then we're also gaining heat from the environment when it's hot outside. So we can't dissipate as well, um, which means the heat gain is greater than the heat loss. Um, that increases thermal strain. It just is very uncomfortable. So again, it's a combination of the environment and the metabolic heat generated, and we can't keep up as well. Um, so what does that look like in the body? Well, quite simply, our core temperature goes up. There's not a great way to measure that outside of the lab, but that's one of the main drivers of what we're experiencing when you talk about, you know, our RPE going up, for example. But if you just want to think about it overall, like thermal strain is a general um, term that we can use related to the internal strain we experience in response to the heat stress. Um, similarly, you know, when you talk about heart rate being the measurement of internal strain, to an outside load. So if you want to think about thermal strain, we see and we feel our heart rate go up, our RPE go up. We may not feel this, but our muscle temperature is going up. Um, in addition to our core temperature, 
some of the downstream effects of this are we actually increase our reliance on stored glycogen versus at the same level of intensity, whereas you know outside of the heat and a cooler temperature, we might be burning more fat or utilizing more fat. So there's that, that makes things seem harder and feel harder and it makes us fatigue faster. Um, because of that, we generate more lactate, um, more metabolites, hydrogen ions and things. And we really have decreased blood flow to the brain, to our GI tract and, um, to the muscle even, because what our body is trying to do is remove that heat. So our blood flow is diverted to the skin to try to get some of that heat away from the core to the skin so we can dissipate it or get rid of it um, to cool things off. So one other thing is our central nervous system is impacted. So obviously we have these, you know, heat or thermal receptors around our body and the it's up to them to kind of slow us down so we can preserve cardiac function neural or central nervous system. So we do have a kind of a decreased overall central drive or motor output. I mean, honestly, all these things, like the outcome, like you said, is pretty simply just decreased exercise capacity or exercise tolerance. We fatigue faster um, due to physical um, central peripheral and like cognitive reasons, you yeah. know, we have these protective effects in place. So, you know, we also think about, you know, hydration and, and sweating and all of that. If you're not keeping up with things, dehydration can make all of that even worse. Um, or more. That's a huge, that's such a huge point. Yeah. So, so other than like hydrating, you know, our bodies have mechanisms in place to kind of compensate for um, this additional heat stress or a thermal strain. So again, our, our blood flow is diverted. We vasodilate at the skin level. So that's kind of like our body's attempting to uh, get rid of the heat through the skin so we can not just sweat and cool, you know, with evaporative cooling, but also just, you know, the, the heat can kind of just go out of the skin from a like convection standpoint. If there's wind on the skin, for example, it'll kind of, you know, wick the heat away. If you want to think of it that way. Um, again, sweating, we improve our sweat rate. We just sweat more <laughs> quite simply and earlier, earlier, but really some things like as we, as we train, like if you live somewhere hot, like we kind of all do right now, the more we train in the heat or in these environments, our body starts increasing the amount of plasma or the plasma volume. And that can actually help with the blood flow, um, heat dissipation with sweating and all of that. So heat training does help that. That's one of the biggest adaptations we're going to be talking about a lot today, but heat training also helps other mechanisms to defend our heat balance. So being able to get rid of it versus, and keeping up with the, you know, the environmental heat as well as our internal metabolic heat production. You know, you made a really good point. If you don't mind, I want to just add a bullet to go back to like the overall intro. Yeah. When you're performing in the heat, when you're, you have a big event and it's, and it's, you know, it's going to be hot, it's in a hot environment, or you're constantly performing in the heat because you're, you're living in it. Listen, there actually are three key things you can do. We're talking about one, right? Number one is heat acclimation training. That's what we're here to talk about too, or, or today. Two increased hydration strategy, right? You said it. And if you 
when we were preparing for Tokyo and going to the mm-hmm. Olympics, super hot environment, super humid environment, a combination of the two, it's three preparation strategies. Heat acclimation training, which we're going to talk about today. We had a hydration strategy of improving, measuring, and really being hyper attentive to hydration because you lose a lot more in the heat than most people think. And then, of course, there, which has been pretty popular lately too, pre-cooling strategies. How do we cool, you know, pre-event performance? How do we cool during warm-ups? How do we even cool during the event itself? But those are really only the only three things that you can do to mitigate mm-hmm. the increased strain or prepare for the increased strain or deal with the increased strain of training environmental heat. Now we're going to talk about heat acclimation, but I, I had to give that list as I thought about it because you talked about hydration in your answer. And it really is, if we're going to heat train, you have to be good at the hydration. Mm-hmm. Like you could kind of skip the pre-cooling, but the reality is if when you go down the heat training road, you better have a really good hydration, hydration management plan, which isn't as simple as just drink more, drink, yes, drink more, but drink the right stuff. Be attentive to your water weight. And I'll mention that in some of the protocols, mm-hmm. but you got to be thinking about it as you go down this road. Yeah, no, definitely. So, I mean, one of, when we talk about like the adaptations to exercising in the heat, let's just say exercising, not even just training, but is your sweat race, sweat rate will increase. So if you have ever had a sweat test in like a thermoneutral environment, um, and you determine your sweat rate to be a liter an hour. Well, when you get into the heat and you start heat acclimating, your sweat rate is actually going to increase. So maybe it's one and a quarter liters an hour or more. Um, the onset of sweating is going to be earlier. So if you're not addressing your hydration plan, if you're already used to maybe drinking half a liter to, you know, 700 mils an hour, if you're not increasing that to compensate for the increased sweat loss, you're going to get dehydrated, especially if you're out there for a long time. Um, the other thing our bodies do, and this is like such a big confusion when we're thinking about drinking is, you know, the salt and the sodium intake, um, because, of everyone's like, Oh, I'm like losing all these electrolytes in my sweat. Yeah. We're all losing some sodium in our sweat, but one of the body's adaptations. And remember that again, like the body is smart, right? So it's not just going to be indefinitely dumping out sodium in your sweat. It's going to be as the sweat rate increases, your body's also going to be more efficient at preserving electrolytes. So defending plasma osmolality. Um, So it is something that we need to think about, but also remember it's one of the adaptive responses to heat training is that we're going to better preserve our electrolytes. That's Um, actually, you just said, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I mean, you just said so something really important. And maybe as we we kind of looked at this a little bigger picture, what are the adaptations we want? I mean, I mean, from a physiological sense, are there a couple of core things that we want to adapt to improve or to be more resilient in the heat? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is from a cardiovascular standpoint is that increase in plasma volume. And that's going to happen very quickly. It's one of the first things that happen to it. And with that, you can kind of see it happening. You'll see that reduction in heart rate because our cardiac output is increased due to the increased plasma volume. That is also going to help the sweat rate increase. Um, and so if you notice, you know, the, the decreased heart rate for the effort, um, which also might contribute to lower RPE as you start getting used to riding in the heat or training in the heat, you start noticing yourself sweat more. Um, you also might notice 
that your thirst response will be increased. Um, and voluntary hydration starts earlier. So you are more thirsty. Now this is gonna be kind of variable for everyone, but it is another adaptation. And um, you know, something that you don't wanna restrict, um, you don't wanna restrict your fluid and take intentionally when you're riding in the heat, because it's just going to, you know, be counter to the adaptations your body is trying to make. It's going to cause you to dehydrate faster and again, go and increase that thermal strain. So, um, one of the other impacts of not drinking slightly off topic, but is it's going to, um, kind of impact your GI function. And so if you're one of those people who's again, used to drinking five to 700 milliliters an hour with 90 to hundred grams of carbs an hour, and all of a sudden you don't change anything and you go like do a workout or a hard workout in the heat, you might find that, you're having GI distress where you don't normally, um, maybe you're starting to experience some cramping. So all of those things, um, your body's trying to adapt, but you also have to be good about letting it adapt and adjusting some of your strategies. Um, other things like your body will decrease its core temperature and skin temperature as you start to adapt, which then starts to reverse, um, some of the metabolic, consequences that you kind of see. So when I mentioned you're more reliant on glycogen stores and the heat, well, as you start getting heat adapted um, or acclimated, you start to reduce that reliance on, on carbs again, on endogenous carbs. So you're better at fat oxidation. You're better at utilizing your carbohydrate drinks and things like that. So again, um, probably the biggest takeaway and it's a culmination of all of these things that you're just more comfortable. Maybe you're not like totally comfortable riding and <laughs> racing in the heat. There's always some level of discomfort, but yeah, your, your thermal comfort and your tolerance improves. Wow. That's an excellent summary. And it really is those, you know, it's funny. You said something important again, because, you know, I've always had the luxury of heat training and having access to a lot of data when we look at it, whether mm -hmm. that's blood data or lab data. Um, but I can also tell you as someone who's done it as a rider, you can feel it happen, mm -hmm. right? And you need to be cognitive of what you're looking for. Reduced heart rates at certain efforts, changes in, in your drinking, your consumption, your thirst rate, how you simply feel in the heat, right? There are a tremendous amount of indicators that will help you feel your adaptation occur. So don't discount those. You know, it is very, sure, you can go in a lab, we can bore some holes in you and take a biopsy, we can pull out a whole bunch of blood and look at what's happening in your blood. But that, in my experience, having done that a lot, 95% of the time, it aligns with the athlete's feelings. Mm. Like, we knew sort of what we were going to see, maybe not the exact magnitude, but we knew. Yeah. So I know a lot of our listeners are coached and a lot of them are not coached, but I think one of the biggest things to think about is when are you riding? Like if you're not putting yourself in the situation where you're experiencing some sort of like heat, how are you going to know? Um, so, you know, instead of like riding first thing in the morning or blasting the AC and things like that, I think from a coach's perspective, can you give us some, like, maybe we should start talking protocols now. Like what yeah. are, yeah. How do you guide an athlete through feeling this and through um, 
the actual training process. Yeah. And that's actually great because you, you mentioned one of the biggest mistakes I see out of the everyday athlete who has heat events, but let's, let's talk protocols. So one of the things we do like to do in our podcast, and we're going to try to, and, and you, Namrit and I have been talking like, how can we even kind of get this more focused? Mm-hmm. Here's the point, take out some notes. I'm going to give you some protocol steps in about three minutes, but first I'm going to give you a little background. When you heat train, so whether you want to call that heat acclimation, heat training, heat event preparation, understand that training in heat, whether it's actual or or created heat, is an increased stress. So you go out and you do your maximum hard effort in an hour, right? And that's 100 TSS point. You go out and do maximum effort in an hour, you're adding where the temperature is 90 degrees, that's more stress. It's sort of, now everybody's going to write this down and be like, Tim said it's more TSS. (laughs) Not quite, but it is like increasing that stress load 20, 30% right? But the worst part of that is like more stress means you, the human being, are undergoing more strain. So if you're going to use these protocols, understand that until you actually get through the adaptation, you're introducing more stress, more training load to your training. And you should think wisely about how to mitigate that training, maybe pull back a little bit. And I'll give some specifics in the protocol, but I don't want to charge down and say heat train and you're out there training as hard as you can. And now you're going to just more expose yourselves to more heat. And then it's like, uh, Tim's protocol cracked me. It didn't work. <laughs> you have to pull back a little bit and adapt to the stress strain. All right. With that said, let's talk about overarching a couple of words let's talk about two, really three different formats of the strategy. When we talk about heat training or heat acclimation, I'm using the terms intermittently at the moment, but when we talk about that, we have an active or a passive format. And basically active is exercising out in the heat. Let's keep that simple. And sometimes we can manipulate that exercise to to create heat. We'll talk about that. But basically active is exercising out in the heat. Passive is typically defined as heat exposure. You go into a sauna at the highest temperature you can manage, or you hot water immersion, whether that's hot tub or your own bathtub can do the work here. And that's usually about 105 to 110 degrees. Again, don't go beyond what you can handle. So when I walk through protocols, I'm going to give you an active protocol a passive protocol. Then I'm going to give you a third protocol, which is heat training, which is my opinion, well supported by training, having gone through this for the Olympics and for plenty of world events, um, my version of active and passive. So just... All right, everybody, welcome back. Sorry, short little technical difficulty there. All right, let's jump into the heat training When we have this, we just talked about this idea that you have active, that you have passive, and then you have what I'm going to call heat training. You also can break those into two categories, short-term and long-term. Most people are focused on short-term because you're heading into your event, you need to get prepared, and you only have X amount of time. So I'm going to define short-term and go deep, and then we'll just explain how that applies to your long-term strategy. All right. So we head out in, in this idea of heat training. Basically what we need, let's talk about an active protocol, the idea of training out in the heat. 
For an active protocol, we really need a 21-day or a three-week kind of cycle to execute this. And we want to make our first 10 to 12 days of the training in the heat exposure as consecutive as we can be. We want to be out in that heat each day. When we start down an active or a training in the heat protocol, the mistake a lot of people make is they go out in the morning when it's cooler or they go out later in the evening when it's cooler. Once you enter into heat acclimation protocol, you want the highest heat you can take in the environment. Now, let's, and that, and to put a number to that, that really needs to be about 85 degrees and above to get the best adaptation. So what should you do if you're like, I want to do some active heat training, I want to be doing my exercise in a hot environment, but it's not hot enough. You manipulate the environment through overdressing. Meaning you're out there, maybe it's 80 degrees, you might need arm warmers, knee warmers, and a vest. And if you really want to get hot, you put on a rain jacket, right? Because that's going to really ball up the heat in there. That's an excellent way to manipulate. Now, do you know exactly how hot you are? No, but you're going to know it's pretty hot if you do it. So you can just use the environment. If your external temperature, your outside temperature is 85 degrees and above, that'll work. You can manipulate that environment by overdressing. Yeah, so I think um, just to add something to that point, like going back to what we were talking about earlier and like what is actually driving the adaptation. So what are you trying to do here? You're trying to elevate your core temperature. And like we said, there's not a good way to measure that. But um if you're thinking about um, the overall like heat gain, so or again, you have the environment and you have the metabolic heat that you're producing. So like what you're saying is if the environment isn't hot enough or stressful enough to increase that core temperature, wear more clothes to try to keep more, <laughs> more heat inside. And yeah, you don't know exactly how hot you are, but it's uncomfortable, right? Like when you're getting to that point. <laughs> That's when you know. <laughs> yeah. You're like, wow, this is uncomfortable. I must be doing mm -hmm. it right. Um, and that, that's exactly what you're doing. You're manipulating the heat environment that you're in to raise the core temperature and get the desired response. Mm -hmm. Now, when you start in the protocol is a three-week protocol, first 10 to 12 days consecutive. You really want to shoot for that. And don't get me wrong, if you kind of miss one day or you had a day off, even just getting some exposure out in the heat will work, but really try to make those. Then we can drift off a little bit. The way the three weeks you should structure is week one should be aerobic work as a whole, right? And when I say aerobic, everybody immediately goes to zone two. You don't have to limit to zone two, but I probably wouldn't do any over FTP work during that time frame because you might overheat. The negative connotations might be too much. But you get out, you're in temperatures, 85 degrees and above or 86 degrees and above if you want to be exactly precise, maybe slightly overdressed. Week one, you're doing generally aerobic kind of work, anything, let's call it FTP and below. As you get into week two and you're kind of meeting, getting close to that 10 to 12 days in a row, you can then introduce some VO2 max or anaerobic or over threshold work to that um, heat adaption and work. Because once you kind of get to the 12 days, you can start to pull back. And this is the problem, right? Everybody adapts at their own rate. We're all unique. So is it 10, Tim, or is it 12? It might even be nine. It 
depends, right? It really is what you're going to adapt to. So you might want to do 12 and just make sure 12 is pretty much the high end where you'll begin the process. You'll, you'll actually be increasing plasma volume significantly earlier than that. Other, you know, the aspects that you want will be coming in alignment. Mm. Once you get to those 12s and most of your training has been aerobic, you don't need all those days. And the way I like to say is you really want once you kind of get there in that second week, maybe five out of seven workouts are hot, meaning you're overdressed or you're getting out in that extremely hot environment, right? One of the, or some combination of the two. There's where you can begin to introduce some above FTP intensity, but maybe that's not the day you're doing the max temp against your body, right? By week three, you can reduce into maintenance mode and maintenance mode is three out of seven hot days. So you don't have to do them all. Once your body achieves this kind of adaptation platform or being prepared for the heat, then um, maintenance is much easier. It doesn't take as much maintenance during that time frame to do that work. Now, mm -hmm. back to Namrita's question before our little technical difficulty, who should do this and what should you do? Everybody will gain from heat training. Well, I shouldn't say that human body is pretty unique, right? In general, everybody will gain from heat training. The real question is how much should you reduce workload during implementation of this protocol? I would say the average, if you put a bell curve, the average fitness person, let's say a CTL, and don't take these numbers exact. I'm trying to give you a good mind vision of 50 to 75, maybe 55 to 80, something in that range. I would reduce volume by 15, maybe even 20%. And I would reduce intensity load in that maybe 10%, maybe even a little more. Now, if you're less fit than that, you're barely training. I'm not sure heat training would be for you, but if you're like, hey, I just need to get ready for the hot environment, which would help you, um, you want to reduce your probably already low volume because you're going to put putting your body under a lot of stress because you're not fit enough to deal with that new stress yet. So you got to be careful when you introduce it. That, now, um, yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think something we should just elaborate on for one second. Um, if you're a pretty low fitness or, you know, you're new to training and it's obviously you're thrown into this hot environment, focus on building your fitness first, because yes. all these adaptations that we talked about at the beginning, the physiological adaptations of increased plasma volume and blood flow and sweating and all that. Those are all endurance adaptations that if you don't have those from working on your base fitness, this isn't going to help a ton. <laughs> um, so focus on that first, but yeah, go ahead. Right, Cause you're going to reduce your volume and intensity of training. Exactly. The cost is too high for the benefit you would get a little more of by just continuing your training. Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend it as a whole, but the one thing it will do for you, if you had a little bit of it is it'll help you tolerate the heat mm -hmm. when you get there, you'll just feel a little more comfortable, but physically you're actually not getting the improvements. You might think mm -hmm. 50 to 80 good recommendation, 15 to 20% of volume reduction, 10, maybe 15%. If you're a hundred and above or 110 and above, probably you need minimum reductions, minimal reductions, because you're fit enough to deal with the new and increased stress and strain. But at that point, it's probably more individualized. It's hard for me to even put a number. Maybe you only need 5%. Maybe you still need 15 to 20%. At that stage, 
it really is hard because it depends on your type of fitness, what you've done to get to that higher CTL, how you've done the work. But in general, if you've done it well, you can probably survive with a 5% reduction across the board and still go through heat training and deal with it pretty well. So that is, you know, a active strategy. 21 days, first 10 to 12 days consecutive, as much as then you can make them, then you can reduce week two-ish down to five out of seven days, week three, three out of seven days, and then stay there. Um, week one, try to really focus on everything FTP and above. Don't introduce a lot of high intensity intervals. By week two, you can introduce your intensity intervals. By week three, you can really just go back to your normal mix of training. Um, that's fine. So yeah. let me ask you a question about people who like, um, maybe this is new for them or they don't have the ability to do three full weeks. Like, what do you think of the strategy? Um, you know, like week one focusing on FTP and below mostly aerobic. So maybe, um, depending on what your training plan looks like, let's say you're self-coached or let's say you're a coach that is not that familiar with programming heat training. Um, I've heard a lot of people do the endurance rides in the heat. And then if they have FTP or above intervals to do, they do those in a more thermoneutral environment. So they are focusing on, you know, chasing Watts, as you say, and those workouts. And then in the longer endurance rides, um, they're doing those in the heat. Well, what do you think of that? So here's a, a protocol I use for dealing with that. Um, so we're going to get a little more complex. So everybody keep writing notes. Um, I have a process of what's known as cool, warm, hot. So let's say you're going out and you're doing five times three minutes with three minutes rest in between, kind of a classic VO2 maxi kind of workout, right? So you're going to go out and do that work. If you tried to do that in high heat, overdressed, overdressing manipulation, everything like that, it can have some significant impacts on the response. So what you should do in the way I would write up that workout is the warm up into the intervals, you're cool. As soon as the intervals are over and you've gotten five, 10 minutes of recovery, you go to warm, spend about a half an hour warm and then go to hot. So what do I mean by that, right? Cool, you're out, let's say it's 84 degrees out, right? <laughs> so cool, you're out, you're, you've got your shorts and your jersey on just like you would normally ride out in the summer. You do that first, you do your warm up. you get nice and warmed up, you knock out your intervals in cool mode. Then you go to warm mode. What is warm mode? You reach in your pockets or you carry a little pack with you. It's what it takes sometimes. And you put on your arm warmers, right? And you pull on your knee warmers. Now, and maybe even a light vest. Now you're warm. Then you ride about a half. It depends on how long the workout is, how much post-endurance or post-work you're doing after intervals. Now you're riding warm. So as you've gotten your hard stuff out of the way, you've done them cooler, allowed you to reach for the power and hit a number. Now you go into warm mode. Then maybe you're 45 minutes from home. Now you go into hot mode. You reach back into your pocket. You take out your rain jacket. You put it on. You zip it all the way up, right? <laughs> and you get hot mode. And, and if you're lucky, it's 93 degrees out now or warmer. Yeah, now it's even hotter and you're wearing a plastic jacket and leg warmers, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But it's a great way to get the best of the manipulation. But if you have to do the high intensity intervals during those first 10 to 12 days, 
use that cool, warm, hot protocol. Don't go cool right to hot because you might, your body's still recovering from the intervals. You might be like, that's a little too much shock and can have some negative impacts, but go cool, warm, and end hot. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good. Cool. Um, and that's um, a su- secret, super secret trip. Don't tell anybody except every single podcast listener. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, again, there's so much, there's so many different directions you can take this. So we're still talking right now about active heat training. And what that is, is it's exercising in the heat and or manipulating your environment could be how you're dressing, um, your workout, you know, for cool, warm, hot. So that's great. Um, what else do we have on active before we move on? Let's talk about performance, right? How do you bring this to bear? discontinue your heat protocols about five to seven days before your event. We want to remove that stress, right? You'll maintain it for that time range, you know, and again, this is, it depends. And it depends on how extreme the environment is that you're going to. But the reality is you don't want to be doing those last couple of days as you're really getting event prep, you're getting your, your, your primes kind of primed to perform. Um, you got to be careful with any of that extra heat stress. I would discontinue it. If you're a super fit athlete, maybe three days out, but give yourself a break before the event. You'll maintain the heat adaptation if you've done it pretty well. Mm. Yeah. So no heat training in the taper for most people. In the short term taper. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So what if you don't live somewhere where it's hot enough to even do this, then what? Let's talk the passive format, right? So in passive format, that's where we just simply expose ourselves to heat. There's two ways that that is executed and you can come up with some other variations, but in general, there's two that'll give you. One is sauna. So the ability to be in a sauna at the maximum temperature you can withstand. And second is what's known as hot water immersion. And again, this could be a hot tub. This can be your bathtub. And that's usually 105 to 110 degrees. Um, And what that passive protocol is, again, same thing. You have a three-week protocol. For passive, because you're not going to quite get the adaptation as active, but it comes a little faster. So you want the first six to seven days to make sure you're absolutely consecutive with this. And basically what you're doing is you're exposing yourself to the sauna or the hot water immersion environment from fifth, start around 15 minutes. If you can take it, don't put yourself in danger and then try over the three week protocol to get all the way out to 30 to 35 minutes after 30 to 35 minutes, diminishing return. You really don't need a lot more time than that. Now here's where it gets challenging and you must be safe when you do what I'm about to say. You should weigh yourself before you go into the hot water environment or the, or the sauna environment. Do not hydrate while you're in the sauna. Unlike when you're actively training and stuff like that, but when you're in the sauna or when you're in the hot water immersion, do not hydrate during that time frame. One of the benefits, I don't want to get too deep into it, of that, of heat exposure, it doesn't have the benefits of plasma volume. I mean, there, there's a lot of relationship here, but not quite the benefits of some of the plasma volume and core temperature management thermoregulation capabilities of active. But one of the things it does is it helps convince your body to produce EPO. 
And EPO has a lot of positive uh, impacts on your performance, but we need to send a signal to our kidneys. <laughs> we're, we're not dehydrating during that time of heat is an important element. Now, when any coach tells an athlete to not dehydrate all the, or not hydrate, all the proper caveats need to be there. You need to be having a regular, you need to be hydrating well at all given times before you tackle this. And as you tackle this program, you need to weigh yourself before going into your heat environment, weigh yourself coming out of your heat environment, and then drink back the appropriate blend of, of water and electrolytes post your heat exposure. You can just do it by weigh yourself in, weigh yourself out, know what you lost, and drink that back immediately post heat exposure. But in summary, that's passive event. You're simply exposing yourself to the environment of heat through sauna or hot water immersion. Something I tell my athletes when they're doing that, the hot water, um, especially because usually a sauna, well, you might have one at home, but not everyone does. Um, but everyone has a hot bath is make sure someone's home I was just <laughs> or say- have your phone near you. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. do not do it alone. Yeah. Like for me, when I work with my athletes that do heat training, um, <laughs> your spouse must be there, like looking through the sauna window <laughs> or in the bathroom with you, particularly from what I'm about to explain in heat training in a moment. Mm-hmm. So you want those first six to seven days consecutive. Um, and then you want to actually through those first weeks, just keep that exposure volume pretty high after six to seven days, maybe five to seven days a week, keep it, you know, keep exposing and try to expand out your time to your, and I'm going to do this in air quotes. If you're listening on a podcast to your comfortable for 35 minutes, right? So it's not comfortable, but I think you understand what I mean. Like I can do 35 minutes. It's not crushing me like it was earlier. Yeah. And that's like one of those things. It's like, how do you know you're adapting? Well, you're watching the clock and you can go longer and longer. Um, So that's a good sign that you're becoming more tolerant. Um, Can you tell us about what do you recommend for timing? So you're still training. Let's say you have a two hour ride scheduled. When do you get in the sauna or the hot water bath? If you're just taking a passive approach, like it's purely passive because you're in a super cold environment and you're going to a super hot environment, four hours no more than four hours before or four hours after within four hours. I'm sorry to be clear. We don't want to negatively, we don't want to create the worst of both worlds, like introduce a lesser stress of a passive heat. Right. And then that negatively impacts your workout. So we want to do it early enough that you recover. Well, you have four hours of recovery. Then you go do your workout. So like you would do your heat exposure in the morning, your workout in the afternoon, or reverse that, do your workout in the morning, which is my preference, do your workout in the morning, and then do your heat exposure in the late afternoon, but make sure there's a four hour window, one side or the other of that. And if you can get in right after your workout, is that what you recommend? Not for pure passive training, but, so let me just finish on passive, but that's what I do, but we're gonna get to that in heat training. When you're doing passive, you still have to reduce your volume. It actually has a little more impact on you than you think. I would leave the same recommendations. I don't want to cover it again that I did in active, but maybe you don't need quite that much, you know, but still start in that mental approach and see what you can handle. Just passive exposure. If you're not used to heat saunas and things like that, that can have some, 
negative impacts. It's again, an increase, you're adding more stress to the system, you're undergoing more strain, that can have a negative impact. Same thing with that passive heat, you know, three, five days before the performance, um, you don't want to start pulling, you want to start thinking about pulling back at seven. Like it's really hard to say because it's individual, but if seven days and in, in, you're considering, is it time to just rock, you know, let my heat adaptation ride and stop introducing that stress. Mm. So that's passive. Now let's tackle your thing. Let's get into the, what do I do? Right. And what do I think is the best protocols? Heat training to me is the combination of active and passive. If you're going to commit to improving by being prepared to perform in the heat and utilizing the benefits of heat training, you go all in, right? If we're going to do it because it's hard, you guys, it's going to suck. Like, let me just be quite blunt. You're going to be like, if I was coaching you and you're like, hey, Coach Tim has this awesome protocol. He's going to take me through heat training and I'm excited. By like day three, you're going to be like, I hate Coach Tim. <laughs> it's not easy. But here's the heat protocol. You simply are putting these two together. This is my heat training. We're actively training in heat, maximizing our exposure to heat. So if it's hottest at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, we're out at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. We're maximizing as many consecutive days as we can expose ourselves to that heat. We're manipulating the environment by if it's not hot enough out, we're overdressing. We're wearing more clothes to achieve that heat. And if we need to do intensity-based workouts in the first 10 to 12 days, we're manipulating even more specifically with the cool, warm, hot protocols that I told you. Mm. Then here's what happens. That's the active side. The same protocols, everything I said in active is in play. Except when you roll your bike into your garage, you're, you have waiting for you a, a spouse, a partner, somebody that's helping you prepare this, or you have a sauna, right? You get off your bike, you step on a scale, you weigh yourself, then you go into your heat exposure immediately, immediately into your heat exposure protocol. In this heat exposure, you, uh, do, and so you weigh yourself going in, you go into your heat exposure protocol, and you're looking to start at 15 minutes of heat exposure and progress to 35 minutes, same protocol. This, and during that 15 to 35 minutes, you cannot drink. And don't drink a whole bunch just before you get in as you're pulling into your garage. You cannot drink. So understand what I'm about to say. Do not do that alone. It is dangerous. You could pass out in a sauna. You could pass out hot water. You think the hot water bath isn't going to be as hard? It's harder. It's more, it's more yeah, difficult. You have to like put yourself in like up to your neck. I mean, you really need to be immersed. You're immersing as much in, as yeah. you can. That's yeah. a fish gill. That's what I like to call it. You have fish gills. Like yeah. you're in the water to here. Yeah. No, I mean, everyone I've used it with, they say they get lightheaded and it yep. is. Um, yeah. So 15 minutes. I mean, I've, I've always read um, that you're really looking at, I guess, with this combination approach, at least 90 minutes, right? So I guess it depends on how long your, your training session is, how hot it is when you're combining the two. Um, that's kind of the minimum threshold. So if your ride is two hours long and it's pretty warm, then you're okay starting at 15 minutes. If that's tolerable, start longer, right? Yeah, that's a great point. 
15 minutes is the minimum, mm -hmm. right? But if you're like, I can do 30 and that's my starting point, great. And then start mm -hmm. progressing from there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're yeah, but like you said, progressed. like more than 40 minutes is kind of pointless. So maybe it's not hot enough then. <laughs> yeah, that also can be increase the heat. You know, you just get used to it. And, you know, mm -hmm. when you're in a tub, you have to keep it hot. So like, mm -hmm. you know, I know uh, I had an athlete who had a hot tub who would just turn up their hot tub mm -hmm. you know, and that maintained. Um, I have been to many environments where we've traveled to big events a couple of weeks early, but we had to do this work. And all you had was a, a hotel room or an Airbnb and whatever. And you have a hot, you have a tub and you're using it and you're dumping hot water in and, you know, doing what you've got to do. Each person, though, it, this is a very individual protocol. You might be like, oh, that's not so hard. I love a hot bath. It'll be easy. Yeah, give it a try. <laughs> You'll be looking at the watch for like 12 minutes, like, come on, 15. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's already like, overheated. Yeah. When you can't drink, that makes it even harder. Um, so what about like most of us? Well, not everyone has AC, but if you have AC, what do you do about that? Are you supposed to get like back in your comfortable environment afterwards? Or how does that influence? Well, let's confirm what happens. What do you do when you get out, right? Get out weigh yourself again, drink back in proper hydration, the pounds that you love. You'll sweat a lot, whether you're sauna or whatever, you're going to sweat a lot. Drink back the lost weight and, and a little bit more, not a crazy amount more, but rehydrate. So now the body has a system, you know, can begin to recover from the workout itself. It's really important that you don't, because I know people who go through this combined active and passive protocol and they actually lose the thirst um desire right so they're just not they'll get out of the, the hot water or the sauna like i'm not that thirsty and it's like i don't care weigh and drink weigh and drink it's so important that the ongoing adaptation and your overall health that you remember that yeah one thing like if you're not if your thirst mechanism is blunted after that add electrolytes to your drink or just use your sports drink because adding that can help that sodium can help stimulate your thirst because you really do need to do that and it'll help you retain the fluids after it yeah also the right mix and mm -hmm. that is you know crucial to do first mm -hmm. now let me get your question though what was your question i don't remember um <laughs> oh the ac yeah <laughs> oh, so if you want to, what are things, whether you do it just the active or just the passive or the combination of, also think about your ongoing environment. Like if you get through your heat training and then you're like, man, that was hot and I struggled. I'm going to turn the air conditioning down to 68 degrees in my house and just lay in the air conditioning for the rest day. You know, that's kind of like push pull. <laughs> you know what I mean? Other things that you can do in this time, particularly if you're going to really hot environments, decrease your air conditioning, meaning turn the temperature up, right? Get outside more, expose yourself more, not, you know, by jumping on the bike and doing another workout and things like that, but being exposed, being actually in the warmer environments or creating the warmer environment will help the adaptation process also. You don't want to counter everything you're working really hard for in a one, two, three hour training bout, and then some really tough time being hot by then sitting in extremely cool temperatures of air conditioning for the rest of the day. So, Don't get me wrong. When you first get out, you should downregulate your temperature and make sure everything comes to normal. But for the remainder of the day, don't be afraid to be a little more warm. 
We're going to create some more domestic um, disputes here over the AC <laughs> usage. My husband's going to kill you. I'm going to be like, yeah, we can't keep it at 68 degrees anymore. It needs to be 78. <laughs> Wait till we do our episode on altitude tents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sleeping. Let's <laughs> talk it, about right? domestic disputes. Wrap <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. your bed in altitude tents. See how yeah. that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. So, um, okay. So. This is a whole training cycle. When when do you do this? How do you program it into the whole like um, progression? So short term, that's where we started, right? I would do this three weeks out leading in, you know, three and a half weeks out so that you have a couple of days to stop the protocol, you know, in the end, just before your performance and let it do. That's short term. That's, wow, I have an event, you know, we have master's nationals coming in, uh, 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 you know, soon, too soon. We should have done this a little earlier. Sorry. Um, you want to get right into these protocols. Short-term adaptation uh, is pretty powerful. Um, if you don't have the full three weeks, two weeks will work. Like get what you can. As a matter of fact, a fair amount of the adaptation will happen in those first, I'll call them 10 to 12 days, but mm -hmm. really you start adapting by six. Yeah, that's true. Comes, yeah. It's pretty quick, but when I say six, then people are like, well, six days and I'll be great. No, at least target the first 10 to 12 days. So make your schedule now for your big heat event. But a three-week protocol is kind of short-term, a couple of days more, a couple of days less, that's short-term. Mm -hmm. But what if you're thinking about big picture? What is long-term then? Well, long-term is uh, actually, to keep it simple, it's the application of two short-term sessions over time. So about three months out, and this really depends on season and what you can and where you can do. And it's, and it's not this long-term, this one that's three months out. It could be four, it could be two and a half, right? Do the short-term protocol. Do the three weeks, about three months out, two and a half months out. That will give you your first round of heat acclimation. It will also, it's smart, right? because you're gonna learn how it impacts you. Mm -hmm. And this destroys my training or no, it makes me feel great or whatever. So before you do the short, then you repeat the short term again, the three weeks before the event. If you do it out here, three months, you know what this is gonna feel like. You're better prepared to do this. In between, you just do a little bit of maintenance work, two, two hot days a week, right? Why, is, why, why would we talk about long-term? Long-term is better. Research has shown that repeated bouts of heat acclimation actually improve long-term and overall abilities to perform in the heat. So doing it twice in kind of like a three to three and a half month countdown, that might be for most of us or a high percentage of us, that's going to be ideal. Same protocol. So you don't one, need to you're going to have some decay in the adaptations. Let's say like I live in Florida, so I can kind of keep that up, but let's say you do it, you know, a short-term protocol, three, three and a half months prior to your event. And then you plan on doing it again. Mm -hmm. Do you have to, um, is, do you see, or in your experience, is the stimulus required greater in that second bout or is it exactly the same as what you did before? I usually recommend trying to be hot one to two days a week in between because you want to try mm -hmm. to pull a little bit of maintenance through that time range. My experience is the it's it's it, the, the RPE, right? The perceived yeah. exertion of the heat work is lesser the second time. You're already mm -hmm. more tolerant in certain ways and you're um, a little more mentally prepared. 
Mm-hmm. Like part of what makes heat training hard is the first three or four days, you're going to be like, like I said, I hate my coach. <laughs> this is really mm-hmm. hard, right? It hits you pretty hard. It's not mentally easy. But by this time you've done it once or twice and you've kind of understood what's going to happen, you're more prepared. But, and there's always a but, right? You also are capable of doing, and this is a dangerous statement to make. So everybody, you probably can withstand a little more temp and a little more time the second time. So don't be afraid to push a little more as long as you're always safe. Proper hydration, weigh yourself in, weigh yourself out and have somebody observing you during your heat time. You can push a little more that second time and squeeze a little more plasma volume, squeeze a little more um, thermoregulation improvements, sweat earlier, all the things you're looking for. You can push it a little harder the second time. You're a little more tolerant. To be honest, you're a little more experienced. You just Mm. understand what you're feeling a little better. Yeah. And I mean, by nature of the training, your workouts are probably going to be a little bit different too. So more specific, you know, more intensity. So maybe that's something you can withstand in the heat. Um, yeah, that's a great point, actually. By doing part of you do the, the first protocol three months out is as you're doing that final prep, you're a little more already heat adapted. So you don't have to reduce or, or potentially edit your training mm. all that much if you've done it well. Mm-hmm. Your fitness will have improved. Yeah, so um, cool. So we've we've talked about active, we've talked about passive, and we've talked about like ideal heat training, which is a combination of the two. Um what did you get all your points out there or should we move on to questions? I think we should move on to questions because that's as many points as I can make in one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one <you> podcast. Know, <laughs> yeah. Honestly, we had a lot of really good questions, so we probably should just move on to that. Um, I'm going to throw this first one to you. I'm a numbers geek and firmly believe in training with power. Great. Um, but there are also times when heart rate is perhaps a better indicator of effort, such as on a long zone two ride with cardiac drift in the heat. Um, can you discuss ride duration in the heat and where switching to heart rate based effort might be better and the difference in fluid or fueling for those conditions? So, yeah, that's, that's actually, I think a great question. Do you, are you still riding by looking at your power meter or should you use heart rate? Is that better? It depends. (laughs) Start that out. So I'm going to give you a a harder answer for, of an athlete. I, I would always use power. Now there's a certain point if you're an immature athlete and immature meaning, I don't mean like, like me, I'm immature. I mean, like <laughs> you haven't been training seriously for you're you've been training seriously for less than 18 to 24 months. That would be an immature athlete. You've just you've only been on the bike for six, eight months or whatever. I might be more responsive to heart rate changes. Um, if you're unfit, low CTL, you know, just rebuilding post-injury, utilizing heart rate in this fashion um, is is a very good answer. If you're doing these longer rides, so outside of that, let's just say a training athlete, a a more mature athlete, again, training maturity, um, with a, a fitness of, I don't know, I hate picking a number, but it still is important to visualize it. Let's say 60 CTL and above, I will generally want to use the power target as the indicator of what you're targeting. So here's why. You should expect more strain over time. The stress can be the same. Remember, power is an external stress. I'm doing 150 watts for three hours. We expect the strain to go up. 
if we don't allow the strain to go up over time, you're never going, and never is too black and white of a word, you're not going to optimize your adaptation to that strain going up. If you don't expose your body, think about what we're talking in heat. If you don't expose your body to the strain or the stress of what you want to adapt to, you should not expect to adapt. That's my overarching answer. And that will be controversial to some degree. And I totally get it. But that's my answer. Now, my caveat is this. If you have extreme drift over time, and it's that impactful time and time again, something else is wrong. You're blaming, well, the answer, not you, but the answer some people might say, well, well then just use your heart rate. But that's a way not to look at the real problem. If you're getting that much drift over a longer ride and everything else, something's not right in your trainer, go back to your coach and say, hey, we need to look at this. Why does this keep happening? Now, don't get me wrong. You go out partying all night one night and you get home late and you don't sleep and you have a crappy breakfast and you're totally dehydrated and an hour and a half in your heart rate's drifting. Well, I'll still say power because you deserve to suffer, right? <laughs> you did it to yourself. There are times where like, man, I just can't do it. And, and, and then that's all you can do is all you can do. That sometimes is the nature of training. But yeah. My answer. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, a lot of good points in there. Uh, the one thing I will say, um, is remember we talked about your sweat rate increasing to um as one of the adaptations so that means you do need to drink more so you know we don't need um you don't need to control your fluid intake i would say if you're if your thirst is increased you have the ability to drink more drink more because that will affect your heart rate um and you'll still get you know adaptations from from training in the heat and then being able to maintain the power targets. Um, so a combination of those is, is, uh, recommended and definitely, you know, keep up your fueling. You can do a better job of that if you're not voluntarily dehydrating. So drinking, eating, um, whatever it takes to keep that, um, keep the power up as much as possible. That's a classic example. Of what I mean, if something else is wrong data, yes. you know, the power of what you're doing with recording all this data is descriptive. Mm -hmm. It's your ability to sit down afterwards with your coach and say, what is right here and what could be better here? And occasionally what is wrong here? Mm. So here's another question. And I think something important to, to put out there, um, how do you know when it's unhealthy or dangerous, or how do you know when, it, when to stop, what, what, whether it's active, let's say, so you're riding in the heat, maybe overdressed, what are the signs that you want to look for? you're you're suffering from heat exhaustion right you're feeling it it's like you're you, you tend like heat exhaustion comes on because of and you mentioned it early memory to these defense mechanisms within your body start ringing the alarms right like we're yeah. in trouble let's let's make this athlete somehow stop doing this to us right yeah. and you've oftentimes the impact is really uh it's, you feel it in your head, I guess. I don't know how to exactly say it. You can be a little lightheaded. You can feel some significantly increased fatigue. You um, get dizzy. Yeah. Right? Those are some, like, not dizzy, like, ooh, I'm totally in a circle. But like, man, maybe I'm struggling a little bit with my balance, stuff like that. Yeah. That's where you feel it coming on. Second level, you keep pushing through that. You start getting, like, sick, ill. You're going to want to throw up. You're going to feel like throwing up. You're, you're, you're weird feelings in your head turn into a headache and turn into some serious lightheadedness and things like that. 
So just listen, your body will send you those signals. Always be pushing, always give it a good effort, but also always be listening and just make sure you're mm-hmm. not doing anything. And it, it's like you want a more complex answer. It really is just listening to those warning bells, override them for a little bit, but then listen to them. Yeah. I mean, we have that like central governor in place for a reason, but um, it's more, you know, cyclists, endurance athletes are always like more is better. And in some case, and sometimes, yeah, like you always want to be pushing, but if you're just starting out, don't start out with like a hundred degrees or more, um, you know, overdressing and all that at the same time. Uh, it's, it's a progression start with, you know, one piece, if it's hot enough, just start there. Um, and then if it's not hot enough, like not 86 degrees or more, then you can start adding some light layers and things. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really good one. So there's another question about how to hydrate. So how can the consumption of water only and electrolytes be balanced or how do we elaborate on fueling in relation to training and racing in the heat? That's better Um, for you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, because our sweat rate has increased, we need to drink more. Um, otherwise, so when we're sweating, we're losing mostly fluid. We're not losing, um, as much sodium. So yeah, we're losing some, but again, we're going to preserve some of that sodium. So it's, um, Primarily, we need to replace the fluids because already your um, the concentration of sodium in your plasma will be increased because of your sweat losses and the fluid losses. So the main thing you want to do is replace fluids. Um, now, there are some new ideas out there, like depending, and it's going to depend on how much of your sweat losses that you're drinking back in your fluid that will dictate how much sodium you also need to replace. Um, Generally speaking, you know, we're all going to lose different amounts of sodium in our sweat. We all have different sweat rates. Start with replacing, you know, using a carbohydrate electrolyte sports drink. Don't start with adding a ton of sodium supplements and pills and powders and all that. Start with your sports drink. If you feel like you need more salt, then start adding it. Um, but I think the thing to really focus on is the fluid replacement, because that's also going to impact your blood flow, your GI, um, and how you're able to intake and digest and process your carbohydrates too. So the last thing you want to be doing is cramping or bonking in the heat. Uh, that's not going to (laughs) help. Um, anything to add to that? Nope. Well said. So what do we wear now? Um, when we talk about mitigating heat, there, I think clothing. So we're thinking about the environmental impact of the heat. What do you suggest um, in terms of like sun protection, tight fitting clothes, clothing, loose fitting clothing? I guess let's think about performance now. So we're not talking about heat training anymore. Yeah, that's what I was wondering yeah. what they meant. Performance wise, I mean, one of the most exciting areas. Uh, I think that is, and I guess this shows how boring my life is, but one of the more exciting areas I I see in improvements in cycling is the introduction of so many great materials and fabric to help us be aerodynamic or to help us cool, to help us be warm, right? It's really actually, if we think about like, I'll just, you know, for me, when I started cycling, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago, um, it, you know, you pulled on a sweatshirt and a, and a beanie and you were good. Uh, I would 
take advantage of all the great cooling technologies that are out there when it comes to performance. What you think about when you're performing in your event is you ultimately want aerodynamics and good thermal regulation, good cooling, right? The longer the event, right, the more you have a dependency on both. So if you had an aerodynamic advantage over a 30-minute event, this might give you, you know, five, three watts because you're wearing the fanciest new aerodynamic suit. But if it's really hot, is that three watts over only 30 minutes worth it for the higher temperature? Probably not. That actually inverts itself on longer events. This is a common mistake of understanding aerodynamics. I would probably give you some heat for those three to five watts over a five-hour event because they're going to matter much more in the overall time because I'm on the course that much longer. The advantage mm. adds up to be something bigger and bigger. We tend to think about that backwards. Now, don't get me wrong. If you can have aero and cooling, that's best. What mm. do I wear? Um, what you're comfortable in. You know, <laughs> that's the data. There's some information. But a lot of times I see people squeeze themselves into aerodynamic things with aerodynamic sleeves and they're just too hot. And yeah, they're getting those three to five, but they're so uncomfortable. It's, it's dominating the mindset. I like the idea in the summer, ultra light jerseys. Um, I wear the Panache uh, uh, Air jersey all the time. I love that thing because it's got a lot of great mesh, cooling mesh engaged in it. They have a long sleeve version, which is awesome, you know, cause it's more cooling, that type of stuff. So long answer, the short answer is follow the new technologies, right? Focus more in general for all of your training and everything else on cooling, make the aerodynamic decision when it matters. Yeah. So, you know, just kind of elaborating on that a little bit and why, you know, the cooling technologies are helping. If you're thinking about what your body's trying to do to offload some of the heat, um, you want the ability to lose the heat through your skin. So if your clothing is basically suffocating your skin, you're not going to be able to lose heat as well. You're not going to be able to sweat as well. Um, so a little bit looser clothing, um, can help allow some of the wind to, you know, using convection to get rid of the heat off the skin. Yeah. It's not as arrow, but again, you have to go back to what's important to you. Um, and then also the skin temperature. So if it's very hot, um, and you know, the sun is radiating on your skin, reducing the effects of that, or kind of like, um, covering with sun sleeves and things like that, the long sleeve, you know, air Jersey that you mentioned that can go a long way with reducing some of the environmental impact of heat, yep. um, when you're working really hard. So all about can... all these new fabrics and utilize them. It is a yeah. really good breakthrough for cycling for all endurance sports. Yeah. Um, here's, so there's another question on how to mitigate the effect of humidity. So when it's really humid, you're going to have a harder time sweating because there's more moisture in the air and the, the gradient between your skin and the air is, is not as much. So you're not going to be able to effectively like sweat as much. You can see it like just pooling. Um, but how do you mitigate that? It's very difficult. You're, Humidity sends some additional signals to your brain that makes it like um, your RPE a lot higher. Just it's it seems a lot harder than just dry heat. So how do you mitigate that? Well, it's difficult. Um, 
one of the best ways, and I came across this reminder when I was doing some research and I just suggested it to another athlete of mine who's training in humid conditions is using an ice slurry. Mm -hmm. Um, so like an icy drink. Now this can, is not really as effective in dry, hot environments because it can, uh, downregulate your sweating response, but when it's humid and your sweating response is kind of, um, limited anyway, there, there might be a, a, a dual benefit of the cooling inside your body with the, from the really cold, icy drink, um, to help, you know, when you start sweating a little bit, even in the humidity, that, that cold drink, that ice slurry might help. So that's something I would consider. Not sure if you have anything else in your experience for humidity. No, I, the one thing though, that you said that people tend to always get backwards, you sweat less. Yeah. In that humidity. We tend to think I sweat so much when it's humid. Actually, the yeah. problem is the reverse. Yeah. So what about at elevation? If you live at higher elevations and you're training in the heat, how does that um how does that affect it everything? Well, first of all, at elevation, the again, we're kind of pointing out like mistakes people will make. It is much drier. You need more hydration right off the bat not just it being drier, but being at elevation, the way your body processes. So right off the bat, heat training gets more challenging because your hydration status, your hydration needs, your hydration plan has to adapt to that period. Like just going to elevation, that should be the first thing you consider. If you don't have good hydration at elevation, you have significantly negative impacts on the adaptations that you want to occur just from elevation right? Then you add heat training on top of that and you make it worse. Mm -hmm. um, so the thing is that we often want to do things like, well, if heat training is good and elevation training is good, let's put them together and make them great. Uh, it's always cost benefit. And if you stack up two good ideas where the cost benefit is okay on this one and the cost benefits okay on this one, and you put them together, that doesn't always add up like you'd want to think about it because the other part is if you're going to go to elevation and heat train, that has a huge cost, right? Huge cost. Yeah. Now, if you're at elevation, you're already well adapted to hydration. You're already well adapted to that stress. Your heat training protocol would generally be the same. Just be more attentive to the hydration as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's so here's another question, nutrition related. So I'll, I'll grab this one. I've heard during extreme heat, a rider cannot eat as much food. So how do you keep your calorie or how do you adjust your calorie intake goals? Um, if I'm taking 90 grams of carbs an hour, do I use liquid fuels instead of solid? So again, as part of the adaptation is, um, when you start out again, you're going to be, uh, needing to probably increase your fluid intakes to compensate for the additional sweat losses before your body's actually adapting to the heat training that you're doing. You might have to come down on the carb intake a little bit, and you'll have to feel that out sort of with your, um, GI symptoms. So if you find that 90 grams of carbs an hour is not tolerable anymore, especially if you're trying to do FTP intervals or anything above then just dial it back a little bit. And then hopefully as you start acclimating through, you know, day 10, 12, 14 and beyond, then you can increase those carbs back to what is normal for you. So 90 grams of carbs an hour, let's say. Um, 
So do you use liquid or solid? That's tricky because if your fluid needs have increased, but your carbohydrate needs have not increased, you'll probably, you have to evaluate where you're getting your calories from. So likely a combination of water or electrolyte drinks, um, maybe some carb electrolyte sports drinks for some of that intake, and then a little bit of, you know, chews or gels or solid food to get the rest of the carbs. So just be always have like a spreadsheet. We, I always have that with my athletes. Um, how are you getting your fluid? How are you getting your electrolytes? How are you getting your carbohydrates? And then adjusting that for hot, humid conditions um, to make sure that you are able to scale up the, um, the fluid intake without all of a sudden getting 120 grams of carbs an hour or more. Um, I, there's some really great sports drinks out there, um, where you can get a lot of calories in just liquids alone. Um, and if that's something that works for you, then that's great, but definitely something to also practice when you're doing your heat training. And then there was a side question of whether it's better to get your electrolytes in liquids or solid. I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, I think it's better to start with the with the electrolyte drinks or the sports drinks that already have the sodium added. And then if you need to add more, pay attention to your sodium appetite or your taste for salt. So if you find yourself like, I don't want any more sweet drinks or I don't want any sweet foods or gels or chews and you're craving salt, then go ahead and, you know, if you're at an aid station or a store stop, grab some salty snacks and get your salt in that way. All right. Um, anything to add? No, great answers. So that's all our questions. Let's go. We always want to give some takeaways. Um, and I don't know, Tim, I don't know what yours are. You're going to surprise me, but don't take mine. <laughs> what are two or three takeaways? I do that to you all the time. It was like, I was going to say you should go first. So I, I should just go first. Me. Yeah, go I'll first. just go first. So um, I guess my first one would be focus on your fitness first. Um if you're not already aerobically fit, a lot of these, it's kind of like when I am asked about supplements, like don't always go to the supplements and like the marginal gains first, you know, focus on your, your diet and your sleep and all that. So here focus on building your fitness and getting to the point where you can undergo and withstand a protocol like this. Um, use an approach that works best for your lifestyle environment and your target events. So um, if you live somewhere warm, use that to your advantage. If you can structure your training schedule around riding in the hottest part of the day, then do that. If you if you have a sauna or you have a hot tub that you have access to, great. Maybe you can do the combination strategy. Work with your coach to program your training and your you know the timing of all of this so you can get the best benefit. Especially if your goal event like Masters Nationals coming up is in Augusta, Georgia. Like that's a pretty big deal. And, you know, you're going to want to use all the tools you have available to you. And then, um, adapt, use, use training to adapt, right? Like it's going to be difficult sometimes. Well, we always train with specificity. So sometimes the specificity is going to be the heat training. Um, but then when you get to race day, really think about how can you mitigate the effects of heat? Are you going to use cooling vests? Or are you going to use sun sleeves? Or are you going to use, you know, aero clothing or not? And, um, are you going to be using ice socks? So think about how you can reduce the impact of the heat on race day to perform the best you can, but then your mindset and training should be kind of suffering through it and, and making those adaptations. 
Excellent. All right, Sam, what do you have? I had the same three. You stole mine. (laughs) No, I think, I mean, you covered it really well. I'll only add one. It is not a magic solution, right? Oftentimes we hear about these advanced protocols that professional riders will do and stuff like that. And it's like, wow, that's the one thing I need to unlock my great performance at nationals or in the heat or whatever your event is. It's not right. If you don't, and you said it as the underlying fitness, if you don't have the underlying training principles in place, if you haven't been consistent, if you don't have a good training rhythm, if you haven't been progressing your training, heat training is not going to solve your problems. Actually, it could make them worse. It is not a magic answer also because it's hard. This, it isn't easy. It's going to test your willpower a little. Now, if you've done the training and done the work and you engage in a good heat training protocol, it will pay off for you, but it's not easy. Just know that it's hard. It's hard to do, but it is a way that, you know, and again, I don't want to talk about heat training. It, it is an impactful, positive training adaptation. It's just not easy. It's not a magic answer. It's not a supplement, right? You're going to need to do the work. That's really my final ad. Yeah. Awesome. Well, there's so many, so many good nuggets in here. Um, Tim, you have a lot of experience working with athletes at the highest level and you've, you've done this with them. So I think it was really valuable for me and other coaches and, you know, all our athletes to hear. So thank you. Um, and everyone, thanks for listening. And if you want more coaching and nutrition content and info on all our coaching programs, visit us at joinbasecamp.com. Our mission at Basecamp is to empower and educate you, the athlete, and to provide a training and learning community for the seasoned racer and newer rider alike. If you liked what you heard today, follow us at the Basecamp Community Podcast, wherever you listen. And if you could leave us a five-star review and subscribe, that would really help. And finally, sign up for our monthly newsletter with more tips at joinbasecamp.com. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you soon.